Matthew chapter 19, as we pick it up, we've been working our way through the gospel of Matthew. You'll notice on your outline that uh, today we're going to talk about a um, rather controversial subject, and uh, we're going to talk about marriage and divorce and Jesus' perspective. And uh, this is the second time in this gospel where this issue has come up, where Jesus has addressed this. So here in this chapter, and then it was back in chapter 5, where we had the Sermon on the Mount. It's also something that Paul is going to talk about in, uh, in his letter to the Corinthian church, uh, to the church of Ephesus. It's one of those things that comes up through the Bible. And uh, uh, the reason for that is it was a big issue in that day, just as it's a big issue in this day. And so hopefully... I'll be able to share uh, our perspective on this. And the reality is that statistically we're told that 90% of us will eventually get married at some point in our life. And then we're told that about half of those marriages will end, although there's never actually been a study that confirms that. But then of those that in the first marriage, there's like a 50% chance that the second marriage will at some point end. And so this is something that's that's really um, pertinent, I think, to where we are. And uh, one of the things that we learn is that for, for most people, divorce doesn't actually end the relationship. There's children, there's custody, there's child support, there's graduation, there's grandkids, and then there's holidays. And uh, if you come from a broken family, you know how the navigating through the holiday se- season can be very difficult at times. And so we're going to talk about divorce and remarriage today. And, and again, hopefully I can share this from a biblical viewpoint, uh, share my perspective on this. And uh, some will take a more conservative view, some will take a more liberal view. This is one of those times where, as uh, it says there in your outline, Paul would say each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. So I'll share our perspective from, from our church, and, uh, but each person will have a slightly different slant on this. Also, let me say that this is not a comprehensive study, this is just more of an overview, and we're talking about that because we're here today. We all... I want to begin today by saying that God's heart, and you want to write this down, is always for reconciliation. God's heart is always for reconciliation. And uh, Paul would say it like this, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself, to Christ, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. For, for you and I as believers, we have the ministry of reconciliation, so as, as best we can, we always want to. Some people will say that my situation is impossible, and I, I would say, well, well, God loves impossible situations. I don't believe any, any situation is impossible. Well, another thing that I'd want to say even before we get into this is that for Christians, marriage is discipleship, and you want to write that down. Marriage is how God grows us. And uh, one of the things that we find is even when two people really love Jesus and they come together and, and they say their, their vows, the, the reality is that marriage is two very selfish and self-centered people coming together in this commitment. And many times we don't find out how selfish and self-centered we really are in, until we get married. And uh, you know, that's, that's why we take a vow. You know, the truth is if uh, we could live on love, we'd never have to take a vow. But nobody can live on love. So we all dress up, we go before the pastor, we invite our family and friends and we take that vow. And then about six months later, we're up in the middle of, in the, middle of the night, we're watching the video going, what in the world did I commit to? You know, it because we've committed to some stuff in marriage. Would you agree? You're very quiet today. You make me nervous when you're quiet like that. So here is a verse that we always use in marriage counseling. Jesus says it like this. He was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And many times what we find, or most times, 
What we find is in marriage counseling, there's one spouse that wants the other spouse to deny themselves, and, uh, and yet the Bible teaches that we are to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and, and follow Him. And so there's that dying to self. So that's sort of the intro as to what we're going to get into today. We're going to pick it up in chapter 19, verse 1, and it says, When Jesus had finished these words, he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And I I wanted to just share with you the map today as to what this is, is really all about on the screen. There it is. So um, as we've been traveling through the Gospel of Matthew, we've centered all the way up in the north end of uh, this area of Israel in this area called Galilee. And there's the Sea of Galilee and there's this town of Capernaum, which is where Jesus had the headquarters for his ministry. And uh, just below that, you'll see that there's that town of Nazareth, and that's where Jesus grew up. And so since we began Matthew, Jesus has been, for the most part, up in this northern area of Galilee and Capernaum. Well, verse 1, it says, Jesus had finished these words, he departed from Galilee and came into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. So as you go further south in Israel, you have this area of Samaria, and then as you go, which is where the Samaritans live, and that's a whole other story there. And then you come down to the bottom of Israel in this area called Judea. Does everybody see that? And down in the bottom part there you'll see there's the town of Jerusalem, and just south of Jerusalem is the area, uh, the little town of, called Bethlehem, which is somewhere between three to five acres in size. And that's where Jesus was born, although he grew up there in the northern part of Israel. Now the reason this is so important, it says he comes down beyond the, the Jordan and over to the right hand side of the screen you'll see that area called Perea, and uh, that's a very Jewish populated area. As Jesus is coming down from the Galilee down to Judea, he's coming down because he's about to go to the cross. In our story, we are right about two weeks before Jesus would be crucified. And uh, I, I've always liked looking at the maps. I don't know how it is for you, but when I grew up in church, they'd always talk about this town and that town. I had no idea what they're talking about. So I, I, I like, do you like that? Yeah. Good, good. Then we'll keep using that. So Jesus is coming down into this area of Judea, which is going to be where Jerusalem is. Verse 2, it says, large crowds followed him and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to Jesus testing him and asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And I've underlined for any reason at all. One of the things that may be surprising to us is that in Jesus' time, divorce was a big issue. People were getting married and they were very quickly getting divorced. They would wake up one morning and they'd say, I'm no longer happy with you. I'd be happier with this other person. And they would begin to reason that you know, God wants us to be happy. And so they would then divorce their spouse. And it was very, very common. And in that time, it, was all, it all came down to one Bible verse, and it was how you interpreted that verse. And that verse came from the Old Testament, the Old Testament law, the book of Deuteronomy, and I've put that there on your outline. And it says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency, and you want to underline that word indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand, sends her out from his house, and she leaves his house and goes, and you want to underline, becomes another man's wife. So because divorce was so widespread in the ancient world, God put some regulations around divorce. 
So if a man divorced his wife, he would have to give her a certificate of divorce. Now the reason for that would be, first of all, if she remarries, and she was going to remarry, uh, as she remarries, nobody could accuse her of committing adultery because she had the certificate of divorce. Also, if, if he, she received a certificate of divorce and the man changes his mind sometime later and he comes back and he says, that's my wife. It, no, no, you gave me the certificate of divorce and so we're done. But also what's important in this, as with all passages in the Bible that relate to marriage and divorce, uh, remarriage is just assumed. So she's going to go and she's going to become somebody else's wife. And you'll see that in Old Testament and you'll see that in the New Testament. Now, the debate centered around the word indecency in that paragraph. There were two schools of thought in that time. Many are surprised to, to learn that as in Christianity that there are denominations, they had kind of the same thing going on in ancient Israel and Judaism. So you had one rabbi, his name was Shammai, and his school of theology, they taught that this word indecency uh, meant sexual immorality, so you could only get divorced for the cause of sexual immorality. There was another rabbi in his school of thought, his name was Hillel, and he looked at the word indecency, and I put that definition there on your outline, and uh, the word means nudity, shame, indecency, improper behavior or blemish, blemish. And so he concluded that you could get a divorce for any reason if she did not make you happy. And they would use the illustration that even if she burnt the eggs one morning and you found that that was displeasing to you, you could divorce her. And so they come to Jesus as he comes down and they ask him in verse 3, they say, and the Pharisees came to Jesus testing him, asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? Now the reason they're asking this is they think they've got him. You see, half the crowd listened to Rabbi Shammai and the other half of the crowd listened to Rabbi Hillel. So however Jesus answers this, they know that half of his following is going to walk away. So how will Jesus answer this? Well, verse 4, it says, He answered and said, Have you not read that he who created, however your Bible says that, them from the beginning, underline the word beginning, made them male and female. Made them male and female. Verse 5, For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. By the way, this is the second time in Matthew's Gospel that Jesus uses this verse. Paul will also use this verse as God's design. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let no man separate. Let no man separate. So there's a few things here that we need to consider as we we move through this. First of all, in uh, verse 4, I put it there on your outline, and it says, he said, he answered and said to them, have you not read? And I want you to underline that. Have you not read? That he who made, and that word made there, katizo in Hebrew, them at the beginning, and I've underlined the word beginning, made, and that word poyo, made them male and female. So as we go forward, just, just a couple of observations. One of the things that we find is that Jesus always points to Scripture as the authority, and you want to write that down. So Jesus just turns to them and says, have you not read? And he points them back to the Bible. So for Jesus, the authority is always the Bible. But then you have, uh, he says, he who made, the word made, uh, there on your outline, and some of your Bibles will say created, 
he made, that word katizo means to fabricate, to found, to form originally, to create, creator, or make. And so that's the first word there, but then it goes on, made them at the beginning, made them male and female. And that word there is poio, which means to appoint, bring forth, ordain, to make, or cause. Underline the word appoint. One of the things that we find about Jesus is anytime he has the opportunity, he emphasizes creation. And you want to write that down. He emphasizes creation. Uh, today is, is uh, because Jesus is talking about marriage and divorce, we're going to talk about that. I would rather take some time and talk about how do you stay married and have a happy marriage. And so maybe we'll get to do that. Um, but also Jesus here is talking about marriage and he just references creation. I would love to take some time when we have the opportunity and talk at least for one Sunday as to um, why you can trust the creation story and how evolution is a complete fairy tale. And uh, once you see it, you'll never be able to unsee it again. Would you be interested if we were to take a week and talk about that? Okay, then we'll, we'll do that here in the near future. So here you have the word katizo and poio. And uh, so what you get from that is that God made or created them and then he appointed them male and female. And in creation, God created the man, fully man, and, and a woman, fully woman. There was not an evolution to where they became this or they became that. He created a male and he created a female. And Jesus will reiterate that time and time again. When it says he appointed them male and female, the idea is that he decided that one would be male and one would be female. If you're a male here today or you're a female here today, it's because God has appointed that as his plan for you. And, uh, and so Satan will always come along and try to distort that picture. This uh, week, you, you may or may not know, but I come from an army family. My dad is retired army. And uh, my, my foster father, who I grew up in his family, was the crew chief on the Sky Crane in Vietnam. And, and uh, Cheryl's dad was in army intelligence, and I was in the army. And uh, so Daniel, our, our son, who's now 18, goes to, he's in ROTC, and he uh, goes to join the, the National Guard, Army Guard. And they ask him the question, they say, what, what gender were you born at birth? And then the next question is, what gender do you, want to, do you like to be identified as? So our world has definitely changed. So just, it was appointed. So, uh, and he said male, so that's good. I, I, was, I was happy. <laughs> So, so you, you have, and now the other thing here in this little verse, if we can, Jesus will always point to the beginning as God's design. So we're going to see that he's going to use this two times, the beginning, at this way from the beginning. He'll use that word. So if you want to know God's design, you want to know God's plan, all you have to do is go back to the very beginning. And in the very beginning, God created a man, he created a woman, he brought them together, and they spent their entire life together. That's God's design. Now, it doesn't always work out that way. When we, we read the Bible, we find some people like David and Jacob and some others, uh, although God intended marriage to be one man, one woman uh, for life, you find that these guys, well, that wasn't how they did marriage. And some of these guys had more than one wife, and, and God took that and he used it, 
but it wasn't his design. So the point that Jesus is making here is that this is God's design. Satan will always come in and try to distort God's design, whether for marriage or sexuality, he'll always try to distort God's purpose and God's plan. Verse 5, he says, and for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So God's design is a man and woman come together, they have the same last name, live in the same house, they worship the same God, and they are together for life. And that's from Genesis 2.24. Verse 6 it says, so they are no longer two but one flesh, and what, therefore what God has joined together, let no man separate. So, so from that we get, it says, what God has joined together, let no man separate. So believers, and you want to write this down, believers are not to get divorced. Verse 7, so now they respond. It says, so they said to them, they said to him, why then did Moses command, underline the word command, to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? Well, what we're going to find is that Moses never commanded. But any time that Satan quotes Scripture, he will always twist it or distort it in some way. So Jesus is going to put it back into its proper perspective. The certificate of divorce was given to protect the innocent. Verse 8, Jesus responds. He said to them, because of the hardness of your hardness of heart, underline that, Moses permitted, it's not commanded, it's permitted, you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been that way. So he says, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses permitted. Now this is very important to understand on this. It's not that Moses is writing scripture and a bunch of Jewish guys show up and they go, we're getting married, Moses, you need to put in there a clause so that we can get out of this marriage. That's not the idea. Moses is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And when it comes to marriage, he realizes this is the original design. But some people have a heart that is so hardened that the only thing you can do is to separate from that person uh, for the safety of the children, for your safety, uh, because of how they are behaving. We'll talk about that in a few moments. But this was given as a protection. Uh, because sometimes staying in the relationship can be unsafe. Verse 9, Jesus says, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality, and I want you to notice that word immorality, we'll talk about that, and marries another woman, commits adultery. Just know that immorality and adultery are two very different things, and so we'll talk about that. When Jesus says in verse 9, he says, And I say to you, He is saying, I am the spokesperson for God. I say to you, and he's saying that with authority. Now the last time that Jesus used this phraseology was in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. He said the same exact thing with the same Greek words, but last time he added a phrase. So I put that there on your outline. It'll be important for our study. Back in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, and that word there is porneia, and it says makes her to commit adultery, makes her commit adultery, underline that. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. I want you to notice that the word unchastity here in this passage is porneia, and it's a very different word than the word adultery. Does everybody see that? Now, we're going to talk about this in a moment, but porneia 
is a reason for divorce, but it's uh, much less specific than adultery. Adultery is very specific. So porneia is going to refer to a wide range of sexual behaviors outside of marriage that sometimes will justify a divorce. We'll talk about that in a few moments. I also want you to notice that he says whoever does this for any other reason makes her commit adultery. Now, when it says makes her commit adultery, her marrying somebody else is just assumed. She's going to marry somebody else. Ladies, back in that day, you couldn't just go back to college, go back to work. You know, you needed to, to marry somebody. And so Jesus recognizes that if you do this, you are making her, putting her in this situation. He's not blaming the woman for being put in that situation. He's blaming the man and holding him responsible for the situation and the position that he's putting this woman into is the idea. He, is the idea. He's saying you're responsible for what you're doing. Now, so far so good? All right, we'll see. So, so, there are times when somebody will come up to me and say, makes her to commit adultery, Pastor Dan, um, I was married, I'm divorced, I married somebody else, this makes her to commit adultery. Am I now living in adultery? Absolutely not. Jesus recognizes Second marriages, he recognizes third marriages, he recognizes fourth marriages. There's this great story in John's Gospel. As we saw the map earlier, in this middle area of Israel there's this place called Samaria. And uh, as Jesus one time is coming down from the north to the south, he goes through Samaria. And there is the story that's commonly referred to as the woman at the well. How many of you have heard of that story? So he gets into a conversation with this woman and as things goes, he says, he says, well, go call your husband. And she says, well, I, I'm not really married right now. And Jesus says, and I put it there on your outline, he says, Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What Jesus doesn't say is that you were married once and you've been living in perpetual adultery from that time forth he recognizes that she has been married this many times. And that was her husband. He recognizes the marriage. So you're not living in this perpetual adultery. Does that make sense? So he is recognizing that and he is not in this passage taking away that hardness of heart clause. He's just pointing us to this is how it was from the beginning. And when you do that to your spouse, you put them in a very, very difficult situation. There is still the hardness of heart clause. We'll talk about that in, a, in just a moment. Well, having said all of that, um, many of us come from broken families. And uh, you, you all know my story. My parents were separated before I was born. I didn't meet my dad till I was 22 and out of college. My mom married my stepfather early on. Uh, he was very upfront that he did not want me, and that necessitated me moving in with another family when I was 13. That family became my family and still is. The relationship with my stepfather was later repaired, and uh, so, so, but you know, it, it created a very unique situation in my life. For Cheryl and her story, when she was nine years old, her parents came in and sat down and told her and her brother and sister 
that they're now getting a divorce. At first, Cheryl and her brother and sister thought they were kidding, so they were laughing. And then it hit them that they're not kidding. And then the laughter turned to this very, very deep crying and weeping. And uh, for those of you who've been through that, you know that there's a deep pain and uh, children's greatest fear is that something won't be right with mom and dad. Their greatest fear is that something bad's going to happen to mom and dad. And if you've been through divorce, you know that. So for Cheryl and I, as we came into marriage, we had to walk through a lot of stuff, but we came to the place where we've made the decision that we are all in. And uh, God has really blessed that, which is why I would like at some point to be able to share with how do you stay married. But there are at times in the Bible, times when ending a marriage is, is uh, the right thing to do. And so I wanted to take just a few minutes and share that. So there on your outline, biblical reasons for a marriage to end. Well, number one would be death. Nothing ends a marriage like death. And, uh, and uh, at this point, I, I normally joke and say, so the question is, can you kill them? And, and <laughs> no, you can't kill them. It has to be natural causes. Uh, when grow, growing up in my, my foster family, we had an Auntie Lee, was her name. Auntie Lee was a very staunch Catholic. And she would say, in my day, you know, you didn't get divorce. Divorce, you know, we'd, we'd say divorce never, you know, murder maybe, but divorce never. And, and so, but she came from that, that generation. And so, but death ends that. Now, there are others who will teach, not Christians, but they teach that, that families are forever. And that is not true. And they have the bumper sticker that says families are forever and that you stay married for, for all eternity. Jesus would teach that in heaven, uh, we're not given in marriage, we don't take in marriage, but we are like the angels. We don't become angels, but we are like them in that, that we are not to marry, or that we don't get married in heaven. So death ends the, the relationship. Now for some of you, that's good news because uh, you're, you don't really want to spend eternity with this person, you're just hoping to get through this life. For others of you... And you know who you are. But for others of, of you, <laughs> you know, you're going, I, but I really want to be with this person. We can all still be friends and have it. So that's, that's good news. So the first, the first reason that a marriage ends is death. And, and that does end the marriage. Second would be sexual immorality. Sexual immorality. Now, from our chapter, chapter 19, verse 9, I put it there in your outline. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness, and that word there is porneia, and marries another woman, commits adultery. And that word uh, adultery is very, very different. The word porneia is the, the Greek word from where we get our English word pornography. Pornography. And uh, porneia is not adultery. And that's very important because uh, there have been times where one spouse will say, well, you can't leave me. I didn't commit technical adultery. Well, porneia and adultery are two different things. In my family, I could not go to Cheryl and say I did not commit technical adultery. It wouldn't change the fact that I'd still be technically dead. You know, that would be how it would be in my family. So porneia, what is porneia? Porneia is this wide range of sexual behaviors outside of the bonds of marriage. So it would be incest, homosexuality, prostitution, molestation, indecent exposure, 
and it would also include adultery, but it's a much broader, uh, much broader thing. It's, it's a wide range of sexual things. So here at Calvary, when those things happen, we always counsel for restoration, but sometimes it's over. Sometimes it's over. And uh, sometimes it, it's just over. And so we, we've certainly seen that through the years. Uh, then the next reason would be hardness of heart. Write that down. Sometimes the heart of one of the partners is so hardened that you have to let them go. Hardness of heart manifests itself in an ongoing, unrepentant sin, which is uh, something that would be out of the ordinary, just a, a very large scale. This is something that we always look at on an, on an uh, individual basis. Some of the things that we've faced through the years. One spouse comes home and they're drunk and they're violent. And they have a reputation for beating up the other spouse. And uh, the spouse shows up and they're bruised. And you find out this is an ongoing situation. The other spouse will not repent and uh, they won't make changes. And so in those times we've said it's probably safer for you if you separate from this person. That is hardness of heart in that person. You don't have to stay married if somebody's using you as a punching bag. And uh, another would be um, this spouse is using illegal drugs and this spouse isn't. And uh, this spouse decides that they're going to start selling those drugs out of the living room. And this spouse realizes that they have children in the home. And if the cops come in and raid the home, both spouses will go to jail. And then they'll take the children. In those cases, we have said, it's advisable for you because this spouse will not stop. You need to protect your children. You need to protect yourself. And you need to legally separate from this person. That would be hardness of heart. They won't repent. Others would be... um, one spouse decides to leave and they're gone for a length of time. They won't come home. They won't repent. And then at a later date, they say, well, I've decided that I'm coming home and you have to take me home because you're a Christian and that's just how it is. That's not true. They made the decision to leave. You make the decision whether you want them back or not because they've already made the decision. The unrepentant person in the relationship does not get to control how the relationship goes. You have to decide at that point, do you want that person back? Another would be if they cut you off sexually. Now, you can share a checkbook with anybody. You can buy a house with anybody. But as a Christian, there's really only one thing that you can't do with just about anybody. And that's one of the reasons that you get married. And so when they cut you off sexually, they are, and they won't repent, they are leaving the marriage and they are leaving the marriage vow. Because in your marriage vow, you promised to do that. A lot. (laughs) So let me just say. Listen. When they say, I'm tired, I have a headache, I've had a hard day, I don't want to, it's perfectly okay for you ladies to say, 
No, that's not what we signed up for. You get over here. It's biblical. It's where you say, thank you, Jesus. So if they cut you off financially, and we're, you're, you can live here, but I'm not supporting you, I'm not helping you. Well, they've exited the, the marriage relationship when they do that. Uh, so these things are very, very rare situations, but sometimes they occur, and we handle these things on an individual basis. Some of us come from a church background where it was easier to be forgiven of murder than it was of divorce, and uh, that's not Jesus's heart in this. So don't hear that that is. So another reason would be what we would say when a non-believing spouse wants out. A non-believing spouse wants out. Paul deals with this. Paul deals with this in, uh, in his letter to the Corinthian church. And Paul says, but to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents, you want to underline the word consents, to live with him, he must not divorce her. Yet, if the unbelieving one leaves, underline, let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. So the context here, it's important to understand this. In in Corinth, the church was going forward, very Greek culture. So two non-believers are married. One of the believers, or one of the members of the, of the marriage becomes a believer, but the other one doesn't. This is not saying that a believer marries an unbeliever. This is two unbelievers get married and one of them becomes a believer is what Paul's talking about here. And so the unbeliever consents, and we underline that. Now that word is translated differently in just about every translation. So there in your outline, in my translation it would say consents. If you have the King James it says pleased. If you have the New Century Version, it would say happy. If you have the New King James, it would say willing. So the unbelieving spouse at this point is saying, I don't really buy into the whole Christian thing, but I like being married to you. Now, so here's what this means. Write this down. By words and deeds, the unbeliever demonstrates that they, they take pleasure in living with you. They take pleasure in living with you. But if the unbelieving spouse turns to you and they're not taking pleasure uh, and they say, you can stay, but I'm not supporting you anymore, that's not taking pleasure in you. Uh, They continually make fun of you for your faith in Jesus. Uh, That's not taking pleasure in staying with you. So only if they consent, they take pleasure in staying with you. Are you required to stay? So in in those cases, there is a freedom, but that freedom always comes with a caution. And the caution is this. Living with that unbelieving spouse gives the unbelieving spouse the opportunity to see what it's like to really live with a Christian. And so you have a greater opportunity of winning that spouse to the Lord if, they, if you stay with them. Uh, there it says, but if they want to leave, and it says, let him leave. There in your outline, and you want to write down, is a command. It's a command. Well, then it goes on. We're going to pick it up in verse 10. Now, verse 10 and the next couple of verses are translated very differently in every, every, uh, in every Bible. So I'll read it from mine, then we'll read it on, on our outline. So in my translation, New American, it says, the disciple said to him, 
if the relationship of the man and wife is like this, it's better not to marry, is how the, the disciples hear this. And he said to them, well, not all men can accept this statement. The idea is not everybody can stay celibate. Not everybody can stay single. He said, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who are born that way from their mother's womb. Uh, there are eunuchs who are made eunuchs by men. And there are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the, sink, for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. And he who is able to accept this, let him accept it. Now, I, I like it uh, from the God's words translation because it gives a little bit more of the intent. I put it there in your outline. The disciples said to him, if that's the only reason a man can use to divorce his wife, it's better not to get married. Now that tells you something. They had grown up in an environment where they were listening to one school of thought over the other. They thought that you could get out of a marriage uh, rather easily. And uh, Jesus is pointing them back to the beginning, man, woman for life. Uh, It's better not to get married. And he answered them, not everyone can do what you suggest. The idea is that most people really need to get married. Only those who, only those who have that gift can. And uh, not everybody has the gift of celibacy. For example, some men are celibate because they were born that way. Others are celibate because they were castrated. Still others have decided to be celibate because of the kingdom of heaven. If any man can do what you've suggested, and you know, again he's already said most can't, then he should do it. In, in the Bible, we know that John the Baptist had that, Jesus had that gift, and Paul had that gift. But the Bible doesn't tell us that anybody else had that gift. So again, this is a very controversial subject. Hopefully uh, it's been given and received with a great deal of grace. The original design is it's one man, one woman for life. And yet we see that we live in a culture, God starts with us where we are, just like the woman at the well. Uh, he started with her where she was, uh, not based upon where her past had been. So with that, uh, hopefully we'll be able to talk at some point in the future here about how to stay married. Did you at least find that interesting today? Good. All right, well, let's go ahead and close in prayer. Fathers, we wrap this up. Lord, we, we look in your word and it says, one man, one woman for life. And for many of us, uh, we've, we're no longer in that picture. And yet from this point on, like you used so many in the Bible who were not in that picture, we ask you to take us and make us and live out your plan through us from this time on as we follow you. Lord, for some of us, we just need to receive your deep peace and grace because in very difficult situations, we had to make some decisions. And so we ask you to breathe your peace right now into the lives of those who've walked through some of these situations. For all of us, Lord, wherever we find ourselves, we thank you for the forgiveness that you've given to us. 
and regardless of what's taken place in our past, you're not holding our sins against us. You saved us knowing full well the things that we had done and the things that we would do. And so for each of us today, Lord, we pray for that comfort and peace as we go forward. I pray, God, that you keep us till we meet again. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, and all God's people said, God bless you guys. We'll see you next time.